right, good morning, guys. A few years ago, I almost, I almost became, um, I was trying to think of a way to tiptoe around this, but there, there's no good way. So I almost became a Calvinist. Let's just put it that way. Um, and here, you know, some of you, this will mean something to you. Some of you won't care. But uh, Calvinists believe five theological points, and I believe four of the five. But from about the year 2000 to the, about the year, I'm going to just say, this is my interpretation, 2015, there became a lot of cultural Calvinism. Um, and guys who liked to wear like flannel and had long beards and um, had the certain ethos about them that I actually liked, you know. My beard never got too long, but I do like flannel. Uh, Pastor Aubrey had a great flannel shirt on today. My wife had a great flannel shirt on today. Uh, but it was kind of this uh, cultural ethos, and, and a lot of it was because a lot of the great preachers of the first part of the 21st century we're Calvinists. In fact, my favorite preachers are Calvinists because they have a high view of God and they're God-centered and it's, it's about God doing his work, all that kind of stuff. But there's one point um, about that theological perspective that's just, I never could get around to scripturally. The idea of the limited atonement. The idea that uh, Christ just died for the elect, but there's some people who are predetermined uh, for eternal destruction. And that's a hard one. Uh, to scripturally swallow. And usually when I ask people who are Calvinists, they kind of, well, I don't really believe that. And, you know, I, I, I don't really believe that. So, I mean, that, that's just how that works. Now, I'm not here. The reason I was not even going to use that word is I didn't want to be divisive here today. But again, I couldn't figure out a way to get work around it. So what I've told my friends who are from that theological perspective, they don't like to hear this. I say, well, you know, I almost became a Calvinist, but I love people too much to do so. Again, they don't like to hear that. Um, so, so I just gave you a little summary of, a, of about a five-year journey that I was on. Um, I say all of this is because the scripture we're going to look for today reminds us of a very important point. And here's the title of my message. Jesus is for everyone. He is. This is what culture thinks. Culture thinks that Jesus is for good people. So like those who are religiously disciplined, like Jesus people, Jesus is for them. Jesus is for um, people who have a certain type of mindset culturally. Jesus is for a certain type of political party. Jesus is for someone who is born in a particular country. But no, Jesus is for everyone. And that's what the epiphany is such an important reminder that we keep reminding you every week in different ways that Jesus didn't come just for his chosen people, the Jews. He came for all of us because the Jews were the forerunners. They were the first fruits. They were the foretaste of what Jesus has for the entire world. And I am so grateful for that as someone who is one-eighth Icelandic and I'm British and my ancestry, and I haven't done the DNA test yet, so I'll find out someday what else, you know, we're all kind of a mix of all this stuff. Jesus is for every tribe, every nation, every language, every one of us. He deserves praise, does he not? So Paul knew that the church in Corinth, they were doubting something really important. They were doubting the resurrection. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important theological chapters 
of Scripture. And, of course, we know chapters were not organized by Paul. It was organized hundreds of years later, but it helps us organize. And we know that this passage in 1 Corinthians is imperative. It's crucial. And, and here's the deal. If you don't believe in the resurrection, there is no faith. If you don't believe in the resurrection, there is no true Jesus. All he is, is he's one among many philosophers, teachers, religious leaders. But the resurrection changes everything. And so with this in mind, I, I, I see this. There's this really a, a creed. One of the early creeds is, is Paul saying Jesus came to this person and this person and this person. And what he's trying to do is trying to prove the legitimacy of the resurrection. But what I want us to do is I want us to see that and see ourselves in these categories of people. And here's the first category you'll see from Scripture. Christ to the denier. Christ to the denier. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5 says this. And then he appeared to Cephas. Now, Pastor Chris knows more Hebrew than I do. He was joking, but it was true. And he called it Cephas, didn't he? What did he call it? Kepha. Tomato, tomato, potato, patata, Cephas, Kepha. I don't know which one of us is right, but I've always called it Cephas, but I'm guessing you're right, Kepha. So that gives you an afternoon Google project. So I'm going to go ahead and continue to pronounce it. What I'm thinking is incorrectly. Uh, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. And so we, we know this in some of your translations, it go, they go ahead and put Peter and simplify things. In fact, my wife who does our media, she was like, why are you using the CSB? Because the NLT actually uses the word Peter. And we had like this argument by text. It was a, it was a, it was a very, you know, loving, healthy argument. But it was a back and forth argument about Bible translations. Man, isn't that something? Um, and so he, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Well, why did he do this? I want to remind you that Peter bombastically claimed to be the most courageous disciple. And he was the very disciple who denied Jesus. Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 54, says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And I, I want to remind you here, there's some courage here, because many had already fled and after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl. So uh, this is important because this is not like someone of high esteem or, or power in the worldly system. Seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another Solomon said, you are the one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And, and, and in other translations and versions, there's a sense that he cursed, what we would call cursing. And you, you can fill in the blanks yourself. And he, he said, and and. And, but Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine that moment for Peter? And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Now he told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out 
and wept bitterly. This is why the distinction is here. You know, Jesus, when Jesus sent a message to Peter through the angel in the tomb, the angel said, and this is in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, it won't be on the screen, it says, go tell his disciple and Peter. Jesus, Jesus was concerned about Peter the denier. And I just want some of you to hear this today. You think your denial of Jesus is so special. Like, I've rebelled against Jesus and he could never forgive me. But Jesus thinks you're special. And he's calling you by name. And your denial is not strong enough to chase his love away. And he's calling your name this morning. And his resurrection is for the deniers. If you can hear my voice, your denial is not too much. And you have not done too much to not receive God's love. You know, when, I, when, I, when I'm betrayed by someone, I want to cut them off for good. It feels natural. It feels right. It feels justified. That, that's what we want to do naturally, but God's not that way. Because I've been a God denier. I've been a Jesus denier. I've denied my faith um, in, in subtle ways. I've denied my faith. I, I, I've avoided Jesus. I've avoided people discovering I was a Christian. I've denied Jesus. And God, Jesus has every right to turn away from me. But he actually does the opposite. Instead of turning away, he steps in. He leans in. He reaches out. He speaks forth my name. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I had a friend of mine who was one grade older than me. We went to the youth group together, but we went to different high schools. And uh, we both played for the two rival high schools. And back in those days, it would be fun. That, that year, I was a junior and he was a senior. It was a... Uh, you know, a little bit of a talk around the church. It reminded me, I saw a couple of our guys play each other Friday night. Beach versus Hendersonville had that same kind of feel. Caleb Powell versus Noah Taylor. And we all grew up, saw them, they all grew up together watching them play each other. This is kind of what was happening with us. So he was a lot better than me. And so he got a scholarship to Texas A&M. He was one of the best football players in the state of Texas. So the next year when I was a senior and he was a freshman, I went to a Texas A&M football game and I got special access to the locker room because someone else was getting recruited by them. I wasn't, but someone else was. Um, and I tagged along, you know. Uh, and and uh, we, were, we were kind of back in that area. And this guy who I had prayed with at the altars, I had loaned him money, I had given him rides, he had called me his best friend, completely snubbed me completely did that. I mean, he just, he just kind of gave me the, kind of nodded and looked the other way. Man, and we were so ticked off. And we said, we're done with Dwayne. His name's not Dwayne, but it does start with a D. <laughs> and I remember just being so mad. We're done with Dwayne, man. It's over, man. I'm done. I'm not going to talk to Dwayne ever again. And that carried over for a few months. Isn't that our natural reaction? 
natural reaction to do that? The end of that story is God redeemed that situation and Dwayne's one of my best friends to this day. But that's what we think God wants gonna do to us. Guys, we don't forgive ourselves. We, we, we make moral choices that don't please the Lord and sometimes maybe we're, we're in a classroom setting or in, around the water cooler at work and we don't really stand up for righteousness or stand up for God like, we're, like we should and we think, well, it's just, I'm a, I'm a denier. I'm a denier and Christianity's not, not for me and, and we just kind of leave the game. But Jesus, the resurrected one, shows up to you. And he says, even though you denied me at a crucial time, I want you back. I'm calling you by name. So it is. If you've denied God, listen to me, he won't deny you. As long as his grace is reaching out. As long as he does that. I grew up uh, around my grandparents. They, they lived in East Dallas. So it was like 15 minutes from Irving. So we would go to their house every other Sunday night, uh, excuse me, every other Sunday for lunch. And what, what a great blessing. And they lived in the same house that my dad had grown up in, which is, is uh, kind of rare. I actually verified the story with my sister and mom yesterday because you know how memory gets. So uh, in the basement, in the closet of the house my dad grew up, there was a Crayola message on the wall. You had to go inside the closet and pull back some coats. But the, the, the Crayola message was this, I hate daddy. <laughs> now I've got to tell you a little bit about my grandpa. He was the sweetest, kindest soul. He, he just really was. I'm just such a sweet, kind soul. No one hated my grandpa. And then I got to tell you about my dad. My dad was a lot like me. He talked a lot. He was a jokester. You might not think I'm a jokester, but I really am. I've crucified that part of my life. It still comes out every once in a while, you know. He was a jokester and a talker and, 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 and just a, a, a big personality. And so the story went that uh, when he was a child, he got mad at my grandpa for some reason, and he went and hid and hid, and they couldn't find him. And when they finally found him, he had gotten his crayons and he had written, I hate daddy inside that closet. And all those years later, as a little kid, I would go and I would be able to see that message. But I didn't tell you what the whole message said. The word hate was actually crossed out in one line. And up above it said, I love daddy. He had gone back, my dad had gone back and changed the message. Because being impulsive and being, you know, just childish, he said he hated the one who loved him the most. And aren't we that way with God? Some of you think that your life has been marked with a message of denial. But by grace, the Lord has put the crayon in your hand. And you just mark out that denial. You mark out that shortcoming. You mark out that mistake. And love covers it up. Love is the new message of your life. So Christ 
came to Peter, the denier. And then Christ came to the chosen, the 12th. He appeared to Kepha, or Cephas, then to the 12, verse 5. And I want you to see that those whom Jesus had invested in and that G- and they had invested in Jesus, Jesus acknowledged. And there's something very special about being one of the 12. You see, we, we are so immature, all we care about is getting into heaven. I just want to get into heaven and accomplish minimum requirements. But there is a chosenness that is available to all of us that says, no, you're not just getting in, you're getting close. Be one of the 12. Be, be one of the chosen one. You know, it's that whole that number 12 goes all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel duplicated in the 12 disciples and duplicated in our hearts also. This idea of uniqueness, this idea of chosenness. And, and I just want some of you to, if you don't have a denial story, Peter had a denial story, but not all the disciples did. We know John didn't for sure, and, and some did, some didn't from tradition. Tradition tells us that they all, except John, um, were executed for Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but tradition tells us that. But I, I want you to understand that Jesus comes to your chosenness. I love the story of the prodigal son and the warning about the older brother. The older brother who at least in that moment, resented God's grace. And man, I have been there before. But I want to remind you this morning, and I think someone really needs to hear this today. There's a special blessing for being a spiritual older brother and not leaving the father's house. You are not to resent the lavish love upon the prodigal because the Lord has something very special for you. And I got this impression this morning. The Lord didn't give that to me till this morning that somebody needs to hear this because you're contemplating rebellion, you're contemplating, contemplating denial, and, and you're getting resentful at the Lord. But the Lord says, you know, being that older brother in that prodigal story, there's, a, there's something unique, there's something special. The Lord wants you to embrace that. He wants you to, to be okay with that. He wants you to be okay with his grace towards a prodigal. If we, if we are not okay with his grace towards the prodigal, then we'll, we'll never have open pathways for people to come back to the heart of God. So we've got to really watch that spiritual pride. We've got to watch that resentment. Here's the third one. Christ to the community. In you version, uh, it says seeker because I changed that word even this morning. My thought originally was this idea of those who sought the Lord. Uh, the Lord revealed himself to. So that's where that came from. But I see here a very important distinction of the 500. In verse 6, it says, Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. This is a very important proof of the resurrection. This is the one place in Scripture that it lets us know this. 
most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So here Paul's saying, guys, this resurrection is true because there were like 500 people that he appeared to at one time. This is not like adding up the 500 over a series of stories. At one time, there were 500 people. This was probably out on the Mount Tabor out in Galilee away from the city because of 500 people gathered, it would have caused a scene and there might've been persecution. But so it's the idea of those who sought the Lord, those who sought the Lord together, those who took the extra effort to leave the city and likely go out into the wilderness, got to see the ascension of the Lord. And I, I want you to see here is that the resurrection of the Lord shows up in community. He shows up in community. Guys, Lone Ranger Christianity is such an American invention. I mean, it's just so, it's, it distraughts me so much that I don't even like to preach on it because then I become that mean, angry preacher, you know. But it, it's just so, it's so deceptive, so deceptive. Um, the number of witnesses here added credibility to what Paul was trying to establish. He was trying to say, it, 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 the resurrection is true because All these people, most who are still alive, there's some who have died, saw this happen. Go talk to them. They're witnesses. They're witnesses. And all those people died, but they witnessed to somebody else who told that story. And then they died, who told that story. Then they died, then they told that story. Then they died and they told that story. All the way down to you and I. And we're still witnesses of the resurrection. We're we're, we're firsthand witnesses you know, we're retelling a story. So just keep telling that story, why don't you, okay? Just keep telling that story. Let's not get all stressed out about evangelism as if it's some kind of a complicated endeavor. It's just us telling the story. Jesus is alive. He, he came back alive on the third day, just like he promised. He's resurrected. We don't celebrate Easter this year in late April. We celebrate Easter every single Sunday. We celebrate Easter every single day. We celebrate the resurrection. It's it's an accurate way to put that. The resurrection of, of Christ. So the community is so important because we hear God. Here's the next one. Christ to the familiar. This is James. Christ to the familiar. James Uh, Let's read verse seven. Then he appeared to James. Now, this is real important. James is the brother of Jesus. You know, the half-brother of Jesus, you could say, because he's Joseph and Mary's son. And, you know, Jesus is really Mary's son. But he's the brother of Jesus. And, And James, there were two Jameses. There was James, who was one of the 12 disciples. This is not him. This is James, the brother of Jesus, He was the leader of the most influential church of that time, the church of Jerusalem. And I think that's really special that Jesus' own brother led the most influential, one of the two or three most influential churches of the early church. That explains that if you look at Acts 1.14, write this down. It's not on your screen. Acts 1.14. This is a really cool fact that Jesus' other brothers were uh, were, were there waiting for the Holy Spirit. So this idea that Jesus went to those who were familiar, he went to his family. And, and I want to talk to you, those of you who just grew up around Christianity. It's like, you know no life that you weren't involved in church. That's really my life too. Some of you, 
You may not even know a particular time you became a Christian. That can be bothersome to people. That's not bothersome to me. Um, I, I, I work through that in my life because it's like falling in love. Some people fall in love with an instant. A lot of people become friends with someone and realize one day, man, I'm in love with that person. So to me, it's not a problem. A lot of you who have grown up in the church, you've grown, grown up around the things of God. You don't have a dramatic story, but you're a child of the church. You don't have a dramatic story when it comes to those things that are marketable and, and those things that, that we tend to celebrate. But you're a true brother or sister of Jesus. And the resurrection's for you. The resurrection is for you. He comes to his brother. He, he, he came to James. See why we slow down for a second to see the richness of the scripture? He came to, he came to brother. He came to brother. He came to sister. He comes to you. He comes to you. You, your faith is precious. Your proximity, your closeness, your nearness to the things of God is so good. Christ to the outcast. Here's the last one. Christ to the outcast. And, and I'm, I'm going to, before I explain the scripture, now is the time for, for me to make a comment on, on something. I, I just, I've not spoken out publicly through my blog or, or Facebook about some of the, the recent state rulings on abortion. Part of the reasons I haven't is because I am pro-life to the core of my being and just because something pops up in the news doesn't make me more pro-life that particular day. I will say this is this is an example of what is going to happen when Roe versus Wade is reversed, which it should be reversed. But if Roe versus Wade is overruled, the the battle about saving life in the womb is not over. It's really just beginning. Because all Roe versus Wade does is it, is it supersedes state law. So you're going to have situations where abortion is very easy to get in New York, and it's very difficult to get in Tennessee. It'll likely be very easy to get in, Colorado, in California and very difficult in Texas. And, and th this is what the future holds. So Preserving life is a matter of education. Laws are important, but laws will not solve the problem because abortions occurred long before Roe versus Wade in 1975. It's a matter of education. It's a matter of the heart. So now, I say this is because think about baby Moses. Baby Moses was considered disposable by the government of his day. Yet, he, he, was, he was preserved. He was preserved and he changed nations. One of the authors on this subject, she, she wrote this so beautifully recently. It says, the unborn have gift, gifts to lead nations, discover cures for disease, create art, write music, and change culture. They have been lost to us. Losses too great to be known this side of heaven. I know that's not a, a new sentiment or a new twist, but I wanted to read those words with accuracy. 
I say all of this is because uh, this comes up now in the passage, Christ to the outcast. Christ to the outcast with Paul. Verse eight says, last of all, he appeared to, as to one born at the wrong time. This is why I mentioned abortion today. This is a metaphor here or, or a, a comparison, maybe is a better way to put that. And, and, and Paul said, I was born at the wrong time spiritually, but Christ appeared to me. So we see the parallels today. It's like a natural birth. It's like it came suddenly and unexpectedly. And that's what happened to, to Paul on the Damascus Road. Suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus appeared. And how it is, if, if, if you think that you have two more months to be born uh, before your baby's born, and then, uh-oh, <laughs> this is six weeks early. Head to the doctors. It comes when you don't expect it. And so it is, he says, last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he appeared for me. And he goes on and says, I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you hear this denial? Do you hear this? Jesus is for everyone. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is, I are they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. I wanna ask our ushers to position themselves to distribute the Lord's Supper today. And I want, as they're doing that, I want to remind you of the premise of this message. Listen, Christ is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. And I want you to hear these statements because I carefully crafted them. And I don't want us to lose this as we're getting ready to distribute, distribute communion. Because there is a certain, um, there's a certain spirit that we have to have when, when, when establishing God's truth. And this spirit comes from this idea that Christ has appeared to Peter, the denier. And he, he's appeared to the apostles who were chosen. He's appeared to the community. He's appeared in churches, but he's also appeared to those like Paul who don't deserve the gospel. If anyone was on the list of people who don't deserve the gospel, it was Jesus, it was Paul, excuse me. Christ, listen to this. Christ is for those who anger us. Some of you are so full of anger towards people and culture, you could not even pray with them to receive Christ because you, you have opposed a spirit with an equally wrong spirit. I'm, I'm gonna tell you something, and, and I didn't mean to share this, but there's a pastor, you would never know who this is, guy is because I barely know him. But I'm somehow Facebook friends on him and on this, this issue that I've already spoken very uh, directly about. He called people who, who supported that scum. This is a minister of the gospel said, these people are scum. And can I just tell you that he is operating in a wrong spirit and you're never gonna change the spirit of the antichrist by operating in the spirit of the antichrist. So judge your spirit very, very carefully or you will totally, totally um, work against the truth that you think you proclaim. Christ is for those who anger, anger us. Christ is for that fallen 
hypocritical pastor who disappointed you? You know, the, the guy or gal who preached the word and found out they were having affairs for, you, for years? Boy, th- that person deserves hell, don't they? No, but Christ is for that person. Christ is for the abortion doctors. Have, you ever, have, have we prayed enough for them? Have we shown Christ's love for those who, who may be performing those procedures out of ignorance, out of a delusion, out of a false way of thinking? You know, Christ loves those men and women. Christ is for the politicians. We just cannot understand. Christ is for the adulterer. Oh, and now, I, hey, now I'm not outside this room anymore. Because we are an adulterous people. We, we, we are not people who, who, who keep our vows in many, many ways. Christ is for the loan shark who, who gives exorbitant, or way too high interest on loans. And it's just, it it's, takes advantage of the poor. Christ is for the embezzler, even for those who have stolen money from the church. There's people who have stolen money from the church. There's people who have skimmed off money out of the offering. I know stories out of people who have skimmed money from the offering and, and you know, Christ is for those people. Christ is for the outcast. And Paul is the example. Paul is the example. He persecuted the church. But even though he wasn't one of the chosen, suddenly, suddenly, Christ appeared on the road of Damascus and made him and converted him and changed him. And that's what grace is. And so, you know, I say all this because Christ is for me. It's for me. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you, we come to the Lord's table. And Lord, we come in repentance. You see, some of us are so arrogantly, we're so arrogant spiritually that we we don't even realize that we've not even been going to the Lord's table in repentance. We've been going to the Lord's table in pride, in superiority. We've been going to the Lord's table in in, uh, spiritual superiority. And so we humble ourselves before you this day, oh God.